This morning we're going to continue on. This is our second sermon with our new series entitled Meaningful Conversations. And I heard from a few of you last week who said, okay, we enjoyed the message, but it wasn't what we thought when we heard the series title. We thought you were going to help us enter into meaningful conversations with non-Christians. That would be a great series, and we're going to do that someday. But what we're looking at is just a few stories in the scripture, in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, where someone has a meaningful conversation with Jesus. And some of them are a little longer, and some of them, like this morning, are short and seemingly, seemingly insignificant. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the text. Father, help us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, fill us up full of your grace. Give us a sense of confidence, not in what we can do within ourselves, but in who you are as the God of the universe. God our Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who lives in us. Teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a leading to the text, have you ever said something where the words were coming out of your mouth and you were regretting them before they ever landed on someone? Your mouth engaged quicker than your brain. And perhaps that happened because you were so excited and you couldn't contain it and the words just come flying out. Or maybe you were in a sense of desperation and you couldn't help it. Or maybe it's you're like George W. Bush years and years ago, and your brain sometimes just doesn't work. Do you remember when he was speaking and he was supposed to say these words? And I'm going to read them because I don't want to do what he did. He was supposed to say these two words, nuclear proliferation. If you remember George W., they came out, nuclear proliferation, <laughs> and he, he murdered it. How many of you have ever said a prayer where immediately in the back of your mind, and either the prayer was just between you and Jesus, silent, or maybe the prayer was you were in front of a room full of people and you were praying, and something came out and you went, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Often when I pray, I hear two indictments that go on in the back of my head. And the first indictment is this, I wish my brain worked faster than my mouth. And then the second indictment I have is this, often, I wish I was more eloquent in my prayers. I wish wish instead of what came out, something with a little bit more substance came out. But I often find myself in this position. Jesus, I wish I had more to offer at the moment. But right now, that's all I've got. If you've ever found yourself in that position, I've got great news for you. The the story that we're going to look at, the story that, that Ben has already alluded to, where Jesus turns the water into wine, his first public miracle we see good news for people like you and I who often we say things 
and we wish we'd have said something different or wish we at least had a little bit more substance. Hear this text with me. <clears throat> Either follow along in your own Bible, your own device, or the text will be up on the screen. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, and I love that we're in God's providence, we're reading this story on Mother's Day. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This morning, I want to look at just three quick pictures of what we see in this very short, yet incredibly uh, profound and impactful, meaningful conversation that Jesus has with his mother. And so we see these three pictures. And the first one is this, Mary's seemingly bothersome request. Mary's seemingly bothersome request demonstrates mankind's desperation and need for help. What Mary did in going to Jesus and ushering these words, there's no more wine. It demonstrates in Mary's life, in your life, and in my life, this sense of desperation or anxiety or worry or perhaps even an opportunity to take advantage of the situation. We see these words when Mary comes and says, uh, the mother of Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus responds to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Have you ever been in a situation where your heart is anxious and you begin to worry and you begin to think, if I don't act and do something now, I may be in trouble or others around me may be in trouble. And so we have these thoughts in our head that consume us and we cap we're captivated by them. We, we can't get rid of them and they go down into our heart 
And our heart agrees with our mind, and then our mouth agrees, and out they come. And all we see in the beginning of this meaningful conversation is, hey, son, they have no more wine. And that's it. And I don't know about you, but when I often find myself in places where I think something's not right, I, off, I, I offer and utter what we could say is these Hail Mary, short, emergency-filled prayers. And we wish they had more content. We wish they had more eloquence. We wish they had more substance. And they often don't. And when we do that, it demonstrates this sense in us of desperation. I've tried to put myself in Mary's place this week wondering what was going through her mind as she's in this, at this wedding party and they're celebrating. Everybody is drinking, consuming something, and then it's gone. I wonder what was going on in Mary's mind. I wonder what fear gripped her. Clearly, there's a reason we're told that Mary is at this wedding and that she has this ability to tell the servants later, you go and do whatever my son tells you to do. So so we have to assume that Mary has some position of prominence at this wedding. And so I imagine that she was gripped with a sense of fear of disappointing all of the guests. I imagine she was gripped with this fear of not having what she wanted. And what she wanted was for everybody else around her, being others-centered, to have a good time, to enjoy themselves, to have what they want and to have what they came for. And so Mary's gripped with this sense of fear. And it causes her to throw out this strange four words. They, they have no more wine. They have no wine. I wonder also <clears throat> if Mary was attempting to take advantage of knowing that her son was special. She surely didn't forget that she conceived this child not by being with physically another human being, but that the angel of the Lord had come to her and told her, Mary, the Holy Spirit has conceived someone in you, and you are going to give birth to the Son of God. Surely Mary remembered that. She knew that. She believed that. And now she's in a situation where we're told that Jesus hadn't performed any miracles prior to this, And she has this quiet confidence in her son. And she sees an opportunity. I don't know if she did this, but I know that you and I are capable of this. She sees an opportunity to carefully use Jesus. She knows what he's capable of. She knows he has the ability to answer her prayers, to answer the desires of her heart. And so she runs to him and says, they have no wine. Which essentially was Mary screaming to her son, 
who she knows is going to be the savior of the world, she's screaming, do something. You have ability to show up and fix this. Jesus, please do something. Now, maybe it was part of it, this sinful flesh within us, where she wanted to be connected to, that's my boy. (laughs) Or maybe she just wanted to honor and glorify whom she knew was the Savior of the world, the Messiah that they had been hoping for. Here's the good news. Whatever her motivation was, it doesn't matter. It demonstrates this desperation that is in all of us, but that's in all of us that comes all the way back from. You can trace this sense of anxiety, desperation, desire to use other people for my benefit that's going to make me look good. You can trace that all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve got desperate. When they heard those words from the enemy saying, you could be just like him. He's he's withholding something from you. He's not wanting you to see with the same clear, knowledgeable eyes that he has. And Adam and Eve, instead of ushering, uttering words of prayer, God, please help us in this moment of weakness, clarify our thinking. Instead of doing that, they acted. And so their prayer was, let's do it. That's in us. The truth is, as we look at this story, it is an incredible reminder for you and me that you and I were Mary. She's she's modeling us in this story. Now, if we just ended there, it's not very encouraging. The second part of this conversation brings us to this place where we see in this second picture of this story, Mary's seemingly bothersome request demonstrates the love and tender care of Christ. Her seemingly bothersome request, it comes out, it brings out this love and tender care of Christ, who hears her words. And although he pushes back initially, woman, what does this have to do with me? Maybe that was just a test for Mary and Mary alone. Maybe that was Jesus, the Son of God, saying to his mother, Mama, are are you really demonstrating a belief in who I said I am? Mom, are you really, are you really leaning into me to do something because you, you truly believe I'm capable? We have no idea. But here's what one thing that we do know. This wedding reception where Jesus turns water into wine is this first public miracle. And for that miracle to take place, You and I did not need to know about this request from his mother, Mary. Mary saying to her son, there is no more wine. That has no bearing on the rest of the story. It's not needed. 
Jesus, certainly in his, his omniscience, his knowing everything, Jesus could have looked around. Surely he, he already knew this. Mary didn't tell him something he didn't know. He didn't need her prompting to perform this miracle. But yet God in his infinite wisdom and his great love for us, his knowledge of your heart and my heart, God saw fit that this tiny little conversation, this meaningful conversation, was included in the story. Why? Why did God see fit that you and I should know this? When he come, she comes and he says, my hour's not yet come, but then Jesus turns to the servants and says, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I I hope you realize that up to this point of the story, and we're going to get to the fact that it it demonstrates his, his, his deity, his godship, if I may use that word. But up to this point of the story, we have to conclude that the reason God tells us this small, seemingly insignificant part is because God wants you to know and he wants me to know you matter. The deepest longing and needs and desires at times of your heart, they matter to me. And in her desperation, Mary utters a few words Let's be very clear here. Jesus is not Jesus is not our heavenly Santa Claus. He's not a genie in a bottle that we manipulate and we rub. <clears throat> he is he's the God of the universe that you and I often treat like our heavenly Santa Claus, don't we? And God in his loving kindness, in his tender care, just like he said, or just like he did in this story with Mary, he performed the miracle. And I'm absolutely convinced that some of you here sitting here this morning, you need to be reminded, this is part of the gospel message. You matter. Your heart matters. Your needs matter. Your desires matter. Here's the qualifier to that. God is, God is not obligated, but he is able. This whole little miracle right here, you and I, you and I use this often as just an expression. Have you ever said this to your children? I want you to go into your bedroom and I want you to clean it up. And they throw a fit. They throw a temper tantrum. And you say, I'm not asking you to turn water into wine. I just want you to go clean your room. And that expression that we use as a, as a punchline in order to get someone to do what we want, God, God actually did this. He is not obligated. But he's able And if you are someone who grew up in the church and you grew up 
perhaps in a legalistic environment or an environment that cared more about doctrine and systematic theology versus you are a a human being created in the image of God who, who loves you enough to send his son. In that equation, he is not obligated, but he's able. Two-thirds of us err on this side of walking around. He's not obligated. He doesn't have to do this. He's probably not going to do this. I keep throwing out these Hail Mary prayers, and he's not going to answer them. Jesus cared enough about his mother to not let the father of the bride get embarrassed, to not let his mother suffer inside. And he performed the miracle. He's not obligated, but he is able. Here's a third picture. If we stopped at this point, and I I hope that you're developing, if you don't already have it, you're developing this muscle in your brain. If we stopped at this point, we miss the point of the text. As good as it is, you matter, he's able. As good as that is, there is more to this text. And we see this in the third picture, Mary's seemingly bothersome request. It brings out the deity of Christ. Her going to him and just simply saying the words, they have no more wine. It provides this opportunity that, again, Jesus didn't need her to set it up, but yet he took advantage of it. It provides this opportunity for his glory, the text tells us, to be manifested among the people who were there. And although the father of the bride didn't know, where, where did this come from? He knew something miraculous had taken place, or he at best knew something profound had happened. And so we see this sense where Jesus' glory and his divinity, his deity, is being pushed out among the people. What do I, what do I mean by that word, the deity of Christ? It just simply means that he's God. He is who he claims to have been his, this, whole, this whole time. Seven times we're we're reminded in the book of John where he asserts, I am the Son of God, the Messiah. And in performing this miracle, and although he has said nothing to the masses, he is silently screaming, I am God. We see a a deeper picture of this in verse 6 and verse 11 that point to his deity. Verse 6 tells us this. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And then at the end of the section that we read in verse 11, we see the words, this is the first of his signs. doesn't use the word miracle. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and it manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So let's go back. Why is it significant and important that we're told in verse 6? Jordan, if you could throw that back up. Why is it important that we're told there were six stone water jars? And it doesn't end there. It could have. 
But it's so crucial to pay attention when you're reading God's word. Why is this word or this phrase or this sentence, why is it there? And so we're told, not that he just went off and performed this miracle, but we're told specifically what he did that points to and screams that he's God. He's not just some man or some good teacher. The six stone water jars, why were they sitting there? for the Jewish rites of purification. God's chosen people were obsessively convinced that they needed to be clean. They needed to wash everywhere they went. And so when you would go to an event like this or party, it was, it was common that there would be all of these large vats of water that were set there for purification purposes as they were coming into the party and then probably uh, maybe again into the reception, they would dip their hands down in and they would wash because they were obsessed with outward cleansing. It's a picture of of the whole Old Testament. All of the sacrifices, the systems of sacrifices, the processes that they went, processes that they went through, it was all because of their obsession with this outward cleansing of the body. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells us this uh, in chapter 7. Jordan is not in there. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. They're convinced that anything that goes into them that is unclean or bad is going to corrupt them. But apart from Jesus the Christ, God's Old Testament children had very little concern about inner cleansing, a cleansing of the heart. And so here we see this picture of these water vats that were told that were used for the process of purification. And then we're told at the end of this chapter, that word, I want to go back to this. This is the first of his signs. Whenever you see the word in in, in the gospel, signs, this is a sign. What it really means is there's a deeper spiritual meaning behind what you just hear and see here. You've just heard the words that Jesus is turning water into wine, but it's a sign that's pointing to something else else, some other spiritual reality. Well, if you study the whole Old Testament and you get into the New Testament, wine is a symbol and a sign for one word, joy. It says that throughout the Old Testament. I saw that head shake. <laughs> You're agreeing, in agreement. Wine is not a symbol or a sign of joy just because of what it has the potential to bring. An altered state of mind. That's not what it's referring to. It's this sign of when you, when you participate in fellowship with other people, the drinking of wine. And oh, by the way, their wine would accomplish the same thing that our wine would today, but it took a whole lot more of their wine to accomplish what our wine will today. Does that make sense? 
If you consumed a bottle of wine today, it may push you over the edge. Probably not back in that day. It was a lot more watered down. But it was this sign and this symbol of joy. And so Jesus, in his sovereign mind, that he knows all things, I bet Jesus smiled a little bit when his mom brought up that we need some more wine. And Jesus sees these vats of water that these are used to cleanse the outside. And Jesus is going to turn that water into a new source of joy. This, is what, this was Jesus coming out party in a sense with, his, with all of his friends there. This coming out party of, I am who I say I am. I'm the son of God. I'm not just a carpenter. And so it's, it's true and it's possible based on other passages of Scripture that Jesus is looking at these vats of water that he removes the old and brings in the new. This is a sign and a symbol for all of you. I'm the new wine. I am the only way. If you want true, everlasting joy, it's through me. It's not through the old system. This old system of of obsessive cleansing and purification. This is Jesus saying to those who are at the party, your system of purification, it didn't work. Now my father gave it to you, but it didn't work. There's a new covenant, a new blood that is going to be spilled once and for all time. There's this passage in Luke chapter 5. I want you to hear these words where Jesus is standing and he's talking with a group of people and he, and he tells them this parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it into an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And so no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wines must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. You know, the system that the the Israelite children had was a system of self-purification, a system of obedience, a system of sacrifices to atone for your own sins. And Jesus is coming in in this simple little story, in this meaningful conversation where his mother just utters this Hail Mary emergency prayer. And Jesus says... I'm going to take that prayer and I'm going to up it. I'm going to manifest my glory. He gives us a new way. It's not through the old system. It's a system that is not Christ-less, but a system that is, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let, Let me ask you this question. Have you ever observed, been in a church and God willing, you haven't said this here. 
But if you've ever been in a church or even experienced yourself, I, I, I see this church, I see in my own heart a life that is apart from Christ. It's not about him. It's about me. It's about my own self-effort. It's about my own atoning for, trying to make right the things that I've done wrong. It's all inward. If you look at the church today, sometimes you want to ask the question as you, as you look at it, where, where's Jesus in that church And at some level, Jesus is looking at all of these folks and he's saying, you can't keep going the old system of self-purification. You need me. Hear, Hear this quote that was said years and years ago. Tell me if you think of it has any application today. But this is also true of many evangelical churches and individual Christians with their fixation on pragmatic self-help. It is an axiom of Christian publishing today that if you want your book to sell, you must not mention the word Jesus or Christ in the title. Instead, you should use some therapeutic jargon and promise worldly happiness through spiritual techniques. I'm guilty of that. You are guilty of that. But the good news is Jesus doesn't leave us to ourselves. He has provided a whole new system where we're invited in, where he does all of the work and we do nothing. We get all of the benefit from what he did. Why? Because you matter. Because he decided so. So in closing, I want to ask you just a couple questions. Um, How is your joy right now today? Where is your joy coming from? Old wineskin things that crack and get holes and disappoint and fade. Are you carrying your old wineskins wherever you go, hoping to find joy and peace and contentment in the offerings of this life? Or are you allowing the old wineskins to be set aside and resting in the truth of Christ's love for you? His work is enough. He is enough. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, help us. Father, we know that when we come before you, it's through your prompting. And we know that when we come before you, we often utter prayers and and enter into conversations with you where we are filled full of doubt and judgment. God, change that. Replace that. Help us to see with new eyes. Help us to see your grace is enough and covers all all that we have ever done that is unpleasing to you and all that we will do today, tomorrow, and going forward.
Your grace is enough. Jesus, give us enough grace to believe that. In your name we pray. Amen.